you will need some notes that we handed out last week and we'll continue this week. And the guys were handing them out as you come in. Anybody not get, put your hand up. We'll get some to you. Anybody over here? You guys did a fantastic job distributing them. Thank you. All right, let me make some announcements and then we'll get back into those notes. I'll review quickly where we left off. For those who were not here or those who were here but forgot five minutes after you left uh, the session. This afternoon at 2.30 is our next what we call family meeting. Those are church business meetings, congregational meeting. We do those by Zoom. So those who are members of our church should have received an email yesterday with the link for this afternoon's Zoom meeting. This Wednesday, our midweek program resumes, and that's the full complement of uh, of ministries for our young people in Pioneer Club, our uh, high school ministries in uh, High Impact, and then we have three classes for adults uh, going on, Master Plan for Life, the Book of uh, Romans, and there's a parenting class as, as well. So all of that is 6 o'clock this Wednesday, and we offer starting at 5 o'clock dinner for those who register for that to help if you're uh, really having to run in from work or picking the kids up at soccer or whatever the case may be. But you need to register so that we know how much food to have for the dinner. And you can come anytime between 5 and 6 to get your food and then go to your various places. I say that resumes because last week we didn't meet because of the night before Thanksgiving. On the 17th of December, it's a Sunday evening, it's our annual Christmas fellowship. It's for adults and we always have a great time with that. So I would encourage you to, to consider coming and go to that banner on our website and it'll tell you what we ask you to bring in terms of food items and also some of the uh, contests that we have if you want to participate in. There's, a, I think, a dress-up contest and uh, I don't, uh, best Christmas costume, I think, and then most outlandish Christmas costume or something. And I came w one year thinking for sure I would get the best Christmas costume prize and they gave me the most outlandish. I wasn't planning on trying to be outlandish, but they all thought it was outlandish. So you never know what's going to happen and what the judges are going to think. So take a look at that, and please uh, join us for it. Uh, always a, a good time, as I say. Long Range on January the 24th. That's a Wednesday, January the 24th. Uh, instead of our midweek adult classes that particular night, we're having a guest speaker. I asked Jonathan Lehman to come to our church. I invited him last February because I know he's very busy and he's, uh, he's uh, in demand, a speaker, and uh, he is coming. He's coming that night, and the reason I asked him to come at the beginning of 2024 is because it's an election year, and Jonathan is a pastor, but he's also an expert and has written a lot on Christians and government, Christians and politics, Christians and the culture, and so he's, I think, a perfect guy to help us get in a right mindset going into an election year where we can be uh, driven in all kinds of directions by misinformation and disinformation. So I'm hoping we can get set in a right mindset at the beginning of the year uh, for that. So please mark that and plan on attending. Jonathan's gonna be interviewed the week before he's with us on uh, Bob Duco on WMUZ. He's also gonna be at uh, Detroit Baptist Seminary we're booking him for a pastor's forum that I go to once a month out in Walled Lake. So we're going to get our blood out of the turnip uh, with this, this guy. Uh, but it'll be, a, it'll be a, a, a worthwhile thing, I believe. 
All right, this is our series, as you see on the screen and on the front cover of your notes, God's Design for Sexuality. And we have framed this material around the three key words in that title, God's Design and Sexuality. Uh, so if you have not been with us for previous sessions, the notes and the recordings are on our website. So the PDFs for previous handouts are there. And in those previous handouts, we have started with God which is where I think you need to start with every issue in all of life and certainly something as monumental as this issue of sexuality. And we saw that God is necessary for us to be able to explain things like existence, uh, the use of logic, where do the laws of logic come from, morals and, and ethics. So we, we showed that it's necessary to start with that foundation and as you discuss with someone these issues that have really come to the fore in our day, I recommend you use this sort of framework in, in doing it. Uh, let me plug one other thing. January the 6th, uh, there is a, a seminar, an all-day seminar, a Saturday seminar for high school seniors and college-age students called Christianity versus Every, Everybody. <laughs> and uh, it's going to be in Troy, and uh, I'm going to be speaking at that, and I'm going to be speaking about this. To, to young people because they're having to deal with this like we all are, but especially at those, at those levels. Uh, so this issue of dealing with the LGBTQ plus challenge, uh, but also uh, the problem of evil is one of the questions that's going to be discussed there by another, by another speaker. And, uh, and is Jesus, can Jesus possibly be the only way? Christianity and pluralism is another subject that we're going to discuss. So we have some handouts for that that are out on the, uh, out on the uh, resource center desk, so I'd encourage you to pick those up. And if you have a high school senior or you have young adults that you know in your life, then uh, tell them about it. So God, you start with God as we frame the, the issues. And then design, and I have said uh, for several weeks now that in order to have wrong, that assumes that you have a standard of right. So it's, a, I think, a helpful way to talk to people because everybody knows there are certain things that are wrong. So then the question becomes, well, how do you, how do you define what's wrong against some standard of right? What is that standard of right? And where did you, where did you get it? Where did it come from? So wrong, any, anything that we say is wrong, assumes a, a right way that it's supposed to go. Abnormal assumes normal. Uh, disorder assumes order. So if we say someone has a psychological disorder, for example, well, that assumes a standard of order. What is that and from where did, where did it come? So you're making the point that, one, not only do you have to start with God in order to have the discussion, but also you are pointing out to them that they assume design in the world on a regular basis, even if they haven't consciously thought about it. And then the third word, sexuality, We've seen that what God says, God's design for sexuality is threefold. It's for procreation, to have children, it's for protection, and it's for, for pleasure. Procreation, so uh, obviously to, to multiply, uh, be fruitful and multiply, but then for protection, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 teaches that there's only one expression for uh, one uh, uh, realm for sexual expression, and that is marriage. And so if someone has the desire, the passion for sexual expression, then the only way for that to have an outlet is marriage. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, then it's better to marry than to burn with passion. 
and so then uh, seek God for finding an appropriate marriage partner. So it's, it's protection against going outside of God's uh, design for, for sexual expression. And it's also protection as you are married that you have a, a regular uh, intimate relationship so that uh, it protects either party from going outside of the marriage relationship as, as well. And then pleasure is part of God's good gift for sexuality. You see that in 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul says to fail to come together on a regular basis physically as married couples is to defraud. He uses that word, defraud uh, one another. Uh, the Song of Solomon in the first part of your Bible is all about uh, the intimate sexual uh, relationship of an uh, engaged, soon-to-be-married uh, Jewish couple. So sexual expression is within and only within marriage, and marriage, according to the Bible, is between a male and a female. Now last week, we saw that in the notes that you have in front of you, we saw that there has been rapid change in just the last few years regarding deviations from heterosexuality. And beginning on page 17, we saw that those changes have come in the psychiatric arena, the political arena, and also in the, the legal realm. If you look at page 18 in your notes, middle of page 18, or about a third of the way down, that indented quote there from Francis Shaver and his work, How Should We Then Live? And he said, if there is no absolute moral standard, then one cannot say in a final sense that anything is right or wrong. By absolute, we mean that which always applies, that which provides a final or ultimate standard. There must be an ultimate if there are to be morals. If there is no absolute beyond man's ideas, then there is no final appeal to judge between individuals and groups whose moral judgments conflict. We are merely left with conflicting opinions. So we'll take a look at now the middle of page 19. We'll pick up where we left off. Middle of page 19. And after listing some of the passages in the Bible that speak directly to the sin of, of homosexuality, and as you read through those, as much as people have tried to say that the Bible does not describe homosexuality as sin, it most definitely does, and there's no way around that. And these, verses, and these verses show that. So then, here's the question, middle of page 19, where we left off. Is homosexuality worse than other sins? So let me talk about that for a bit. We give you these notes. <clears throat> I've told you this in the past. We give you these notes. They're fairly extensive. But if I don't just stop and comment about them and say things that are not in the notes, then the problem is you don't need me. So the reason that I stop and comment is for job security. This is okay. So we're going to look at is homosexuality worse than other sins, but let me set that up a little bit. Have you ever considered that the Christian doctrine of original sin, meaning that we all, we all have the effects of the original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and that all of us then come into the world with a sin nature. So the doctrine of original sin. I am convinced that if we fully understand that, that if we understand that we all come into the world spiritually equal, 
because we all have this sin nature, that it should then generate, it should result in compassion. Because I come with the understanding that I'm no better than anybody else. That I am born a sinner just like you are. And it doesn't matter who you are. And it doesn't matter where you're from. Original sin is a great equalizer. We're all equally bad. The Bible teaches. So it should generate compassion. Now, differentiation does occur. We're all born the same in terms of our nature. It is a sin nature. But differentiation occurs, and it occurs through both nurture and nature. Differentiation occurs through, through nurture, primarily through nurture. And that's why we say things like, but for the grace of God, so go I. Because you think about what the Bible teaches. We all come in equal, equal status spiritually. We're all born with a sin nature. And yet, differentiation occurs. Paths diverge. So now we try to come up with explanations as to why that that happens. And one explanation is, and often an explanation, is nurture or environment influences. Things that, that we have seen affect, hear this now, not that we are sinners, but rather the way in which we sin. We learn to sin in particular ways by watching other people do it. And that's why you see kids grow up like their parents. And the kids see sometimes bad things in their parents that they don't want to replicate. But there's almost this irresistible influence. It's not completely irresistible, but it's very strong. And so you find people as they you know, get to their about 30 and they say, I can't believe it, I'm acting like my old man. I'm acting like my, I'm acting like my mom. Nurture has a, has a strong appeal. And so we should, I think, properly, biblically look at people and say, we're all in the same boat spiritually. Original sin teaches that. But then there is nurture that we, we don't have the same environments in which we were influenced. And but for the, but for the grace of God. And if you don't have a rubric like that, if you don't have a framework like, like that, then you will have to place the root somewhere else within. What explains why that person behaves the way they do? Why are they like that? Why can't they be like me? Why can't more people be like us? And so we use terms like He's just a bad seed. So how many, how many bad seeds are there in the human race, according to the Bible? Right now it would be about 7 billion, I think. Okay. Everybody who comes into the world. But all too often we don't, we don't think that way. We look at somebody and we attribute what they do to something, to something other than that. Something that's different than us. We attribute it to being somehow a bad seed or, or to race. Those people are like that. That's what they do. Or intellect. The Supreme Court of the United States has in its, uh, has in its annals of Supreme Court decisions a decision by Oliver Wendell Holmes. 
Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I'm quoting what he said in one of his decisions that was about eugenics and whether or not people could be sterilized against their will to have no more children. And Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote in favor of doing that. And here's his reasoning. I'm quoting now. One generation of imbeciles is enough. That's a quote. In the annals, in, forever memorialized in the writings of our Supreme Court. But do you see what's, you see what's happening here? Whenever we place the locus, the, the root, outside of where the Bible does that, you don't have the great equalizer anymore, and you have to differentiate in some ways, and it can, it can, and does, and throughout human history has, resulted in all kinds of problems because we focus on external things, or we focus on things that are not common to us as the, as the root. So we all have the same nature with which we come into the world, a sin nature. It is the great spiritual equalizer. But we are all also susceptible to corruption by nurture and disposition by nature. So let me say that again. We are all susceptible to corruption by nurture and also by and also susceptible to disposition by nature. Corruption by nurture, disposition by nature, and we are all susceptible to both. Now I'll explain, but the key word in that is all. All of us. We're all susceptible to these. So when I say susceptible to corruption by nurture, we come into the world as equal spiritually, equally bad, sin nature, but our environment and the influences around us then cause us to sin in particular ways. We're all going to sin. The question is, how are we going to do that? How's it going to manifest itself? And it's going to show up in some lives differently than others because they have different influences. So that's nurture, susceptible to corruption by nurture. But then there's also susceptibility to disposition by nature. Apart from the external influences, I am born and you are born with different personalities and different tendencies towards certain kinds of sin. I mean, somebody, somebody like me, who's your, your, your personality, you're just an, an extrovert, you, you, you're, you're okay to talk to people, I've been okay to talk to people my whole life, comes in handy when you do what I do for a living. But it also, and so this is natural, this is your, my disposition, this is my, my personality. But guess what? That can, that can move me in sinful ways very easily. When you talk a lot, in fact, the book of Proverbs says, in the presence of many words, sin is not absent. The more you talk, the more susceptible you are to sinning in the way you, in the way you talk. And so we all have our natural personalities and dispositions that move us in particular ways. And I'm going to have struggles that you're not. And you're going to have struggles that I'm not. And those come by nature, disposition, personality, and by nurture, influence, and environment. All right, with that background, back to the middle of page 19. See, you guys can't fire me because... So I say here, while any type of sin, desire, thought, word, deed, 
omission or commission. And a single sin of any type is enough to violate God's character and damn us. And Christ's death atones equally for all sin. It is nevertheless true that some sins are distinguished by what they affect and represent. So that's a mouthful. Let's do it again. Any type of sin. So look at all these types of sin. Sins of desire. Sins of thought, of word, of deed, and deeds that I commit or omit. And by the way, the omission and commission go with all the others too. Desire, thought, and word. Things that I should desire that I fail to desire. Things that I should say that I fail to say. Things that I should think that I fail to think. Sin is that broadly defined in the Scripture. So if that's the case, you've got to lose the idea that you're ever going to recommend yourself to God by saying, hey, my good weight out, outweighed my bad. You don't have a chance. Now, I don't have a chance outside of God intervening on our behalf, which thankfully He's done in Jesus Christ. But it's necessary because sin is so deep. The solution is so radical because the problem is so deep. And so those are the types of sin. And then a single sin within any of those. So a, a, a failure to desire what I'm supposed to desire, a failure to say what I'm supposed to say, think what I'm supposed to think. One failure in any of those categories is enough to damn us. Well, we're all in bad shape, aren't we? But Christ's death atones equally for all sin. Yet it's still true, some sins are distinguished by what they affect and represent. So we have to make sure that we differentiate, differentiate carefully. That is, next line, some sins have greater consequences than others, and some represent a greater degree of corruption. For example, in the verses that are quoted above, the penalty for homosexuality in the Old Testament was death. It's not death for everything. It's death for some things. So if all sin is equal, in a sense, then how do you have unequal punishments? So why is that? In part, because it threatened to undermine civil order. Remember what you're dealing with in the Old Testament. You're dealing with a theocracy. You're dealing with a government that's ruled directly by God with, it, with his representatives, someone like Moses. And so you have the mediated kingdom that Jesus is going to restore in the future, but you have it through people like Moses, and you have it through uh, people like the judges and so on. And the law that God gave to Israel was to regulate all of life. And there were some things that threatened the civil order for, for the nation, God's chosen nation, and his plans for that nation. Dr. Mark Snowberger has cat cataloged the capital offenses in the Old Testament and found that they fall into four categories. And of those, the main horizontal offenses, that is, between people, are those that threaten to undermine civil order. So why was homosexuality singled out? It's not singled out. There were other things that had capital punishment 
as the consequence. But those all are not because the sin itself or the person themselves are worse than you or me. It's because the thing that they're doing threatens something larger within the civil order, the government. And in addition, next paragraph, to having great consequences, homosexuality also represents, so I say the effect and also the representation. What's it affect? What does it represent? Here's the representation. Homosexuality represents a clear example of idolatry, which is ultimately a focus on self rather than God. And it's for this reason that Romans chapter 1, which is cited on page 18, places homosexuality in the context of idolatry. The exchange that Romans chapter 1 speaks of from God to idolatry, and in both verses 23 and 25 of that, of that chapter, is related to verse 26. They exchanged the natural for the unnatural. And the same Greek word for exchange is used throughout the passage. So this exchange of the glory of God for the glory of the creature, that's idolatry. But then a little bit later, it talks about exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations. So it's, so it's connecting this sin with a particular, particularly clear expression of idolatry. And so homosexuality is condemned by God, as all sin is. Is it worse than other sins? It's not worse in terms of the person doing it being worse than I am. It's not worse in that the person doing it requires something different than what I require in order to be reconciled with God. We're all the same on that spiritual level. But it does have cultural effects, societal effects. And it also does represent in a clear way, clearer than some other sins. All sin at its part is idolatry. <laughs> but it represents in a very clear way the corruption of a society. And that's why the Bible in Romans chapter 1 uh, selects that as an example of the deterioration of a culture and a society. So, top of page 20 then. Nature and nurture. We are all born that way. In that all of us are born as sinners and we struggle with different manifestations of that sin nature. But we are also made that way. As we're influenced by the models we grow up with and the cultural consensus that dominates our environment. So what's happening now in our culture now, with this rapid change of the mores within society, not only in America, but around the world. I said last week that it was just 20 years ago this year, 2003, just 20 years ago, that for the first time in the history of human existence, a government declared same-sex marriage as legal. The Netherlands declared same-sex marriage legal in 2003. First time in human history, 20 years ago. And in those 20 years, there has been rapid change. Now, what's going to happen then with that is what happens with all sin. Now, nurture is going to play 
a huge role in the way people see this particular sin. Now young people who in the past grew up dealing with the the dysphoria that they would have at a young age, a girl liking to, you know, to be a tomboy, and a boy dressing up, you know, liking to dress up like girls for a period of time. Because of nurture and because of the environment, they would grow out of it for the most part. But because nurture has changed now, the environment has changed, people are being told, no, don't do that. It's not, it's not anything wrong. Not only is it not anything wrong, it's something you should affirm, and the sooner you affirm it, the better. So that's a, a powerful nurturing effect because of what the culture has, has accepted, and it affects them, our children. It affects our schools. It has far-reaching effects, and it's happening quickly. So top of page 20 again, we're born that way, we're all born sinners, struggle with different manifestations, but we're made that way because we're influenced by the models we grow up with and the cultural consensus that dominates, and what I'm telling you is that has changed and has changed rapidly, and it has far-reaching effects. Now going back to when I was growing up, the teaching and preaching I heard was full of a kind of culturally accepted machismo that was passed off as biblical masculinity. And it would be easy in that environment for a boy to conclude, if that's the profile of a man, and that's not what I am, then maybe I'm not a man. Now, you guys know when I I talk about culturally accepted, so in order for you to be considered a real man, this is what real men do. I, I, I went to a Christian school, and I'm thankful for that. But I can still remember a chapel service where a guest speaker came in, and he was talking about differences between girls and boys, men and women, Men need to act like men. And I can still see him walking across the front of the gym where we had chapel. And he said, men don't just walk effeminate like they stride. And he showed us how to stride. You know, take long steps, move your arms, you know, the whole bit. And I'm thinking, is there a verse on that somewhere? <laughs> and, we, and, we were, and we were bombarded with, with that, that this is what a man is. And so you can see if you're not careful, if we're not careful, and we give people a culturally formed view of what a male is or what a female is, and if they're not that, if, it, if the guy's not the jock, if he doesn't like sports, then what's he going to think about himself? Now, he's still, if he's biologically male, he's still a male. But we should not give him a false idea about what his gender is. And that is something that it's easy to do if we're not careful. So, the issue of whether you're a man, I say here, is not whether you meet some extra biblical profile created by society or by preachers. It's whether you are biologically a male. And we need to be very careful that the images we portray of masculinity and femininity are strictly what the Bible says and not merely the models we grew up with and sought to emulate. The emerging cultural consensus on same-sex behavior and gender identity means that not only will the Bible's teaching on these matters be questioned, but more young people will be inclined to translate gender confusion into identity. This is what I am. 
So I'm going to announce it loud and proud. And I'm going to have counselors at school telling me that that's what I should, should do. And that's unfortunately what's happening. And then following the advice of peers and the media and school counselors and so on, come out loud and proud, some of these young people are in our churches, forcing some of us to face this issue directly and many for the, the first time. Y'all see that? That's where we've come. We've come quickly. That's where we are. And in order to deal with it, we have to have a clear view of biblical anthropology, biblical understanding of humanity. Humanity in our natural created state as fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God, but also humanity in our sin nature and how that manifests itself and how we sin differently, but we all have the same sin problem. And doing that doesn't dismiss, as you can see at the top of page 20, I've not dismissed the seriousness now of the cultural shift. Because the cultural shift has some serious consequences to it. We just need to identify the root of those consequences biblically, rightly, so that we as a church, we as families, we as individuals, can then deal with it righteously. So, with that, middle of page 20, is homosexuality normal? 1989, an episode of the television show 30-something, showing two gay men talking in bed, cost ABC $41 million in advertising. By 1996, two lesbian characters on the NBC sitcom Friends, married with barely... Uh, uh, that were married, barely issued a, a protest from network affiliates. There are s currently several popular TV shows with homosexual characters. Homosexuals are now common in almost all segments of modern culture. As our culture seeks to normalize homosexuality, people, including Christians, face the danger of being desensitized to immorality. So the Overton window, some of you know what that is, shifts. And so what was unacceptable and unthinkable is now not only thinkable, but is in front of you on a regular basis. And so it shifts your thinking now as to what's acceptable, desensitizes us to immorality. The Bible warns us of the need to remain vigilant in the spiritual battle for moral purity. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. As homosexuality, bottom of page 20, becomes normal and acceptable in our culture, criticism of that behavior may become dangerous, even criminal. So I fellowship with pastors. I have some pastor friends in Canada. In Canada, if you speak like I'm speaking now, you, you can be liable for jail. Now, these brothers are willing to do it. Uh, 
the Canadian government is much, much, if you think our government is onerous, <laughs> move to Canada, okay? I mean, it's really onerous. Back during COVID and the shutdowns and all of that and the way they dealt with churches, I have pastor friends who went to jail during COVID in Canada. So you have places, you have places like that that are threatening to do this and you know, it could come our way as well and we, I, we have to decide what is true, what does God call us to do and how and then have the courage to do it and to do it properly. Currently, those who refuse to acknowledge homosexuality as acceptable are labeled homophobic, ignorant, and other epithets, right? So homophobic. So that removes the debate because it starts with an ad hominem against you. There's something wrong with you, you're homophobic. When we advertised this series on social media, we generated some social media interest. And we had some people make comments immediately. They were angry, and I answered them. And I answered them as clearly and as patiently as I, as I could. And if you ask me, I think I did a pretty good job of it. Anybody agree? Okay. None of you guys read it. But... Uh, one person in particular, right off the, the bat, said, you know, it really makes me wonder when people are so interested in the sexual activity of other people. Do you know what they were implying there? They're implying the fact that you're wanting to teach on this means you've you got some closet perversion going on yourself. That's why you're so interested in this. So ad hominem, homophobic, ignorant, you're perverted, that's why you're interested in somebody else's sex life. Now, it used to be that when I was growing up and there were not very many vocal and public advocates for homosexuality, but there were some, and the few that there were would say, hey, what business is it of yours what I do in the privacy of my own bedroom? That was the argument. And over time, they won that argument that most people said, hey, you know, what people do and I don't know anything about, why do I care about it? And frankly, personally, I'm okay with that myself. I've got, you know, plenty of stuff to deal with that I do know about. <laughs> so I don't, have to, I don't have to worry about what I don't know about, okay? They won that argument. But see, the, the, the issue was never going to stop there. See, if it stopped at, hey, what I do in the privacy of my bedroom is none of your business, that would be one thing, but it didn't stop there. Now this is where we are. You have to positively affirm my lifestyle. That's completely different. And you have to do that in school. You have to do that at work. And so now the culture is imposing that upon us in a way that we're going to have to, we're going to, have to respond. When somebody says you are homophobic, I recommend you say, you know, I am phobic. <laughs> Phobia means fear. But I'm a theophobe. You know what theophobe means? Theos means God. Phobos means fear. I'm a God-fearer. I'm not a homophobe. I'm a theophobe. 
I fear God. And you should fear God too. And the fear of God, as a God-fearing person, means that I want to do the right thing. I want to do the right thing myself. I want to do the right thing by you. I want to do the right thing by my children. So Christians are having to deal with this in a shift in our culture. And over the next few weeks, we'll talk about uh, some of the practical ways we'll have to do that. But this is one, how you have the conversation. Top of page 21. So some Christians are opting to say, well, there, there can be a category of people who are Christian homosexuals. And so you see that at the top. Some outspoken practicing homosexuals proudly wear the label Christian. In fact, there's even a nationwide Christian denomination, in quotes, for homosexuals, the Metropolitan Community Church. You can, you can look that up on the Internet. They have churches all around the country. They claim that the Bible does not condemn homosexual behavior, and they offer the following arguments. The homosexuality prohibited in the Bible was unnatural, while what is practiced today is natural. For heterosexuals to experiment with homosexuality is sin, but for the individual who was born as a homosexual and oriented toward it, it's not sin, it's natural for them. And so therefore it doesn't fall under the condemnation of unnatural acts. But here's what the Bible does teach. It never does make a distinction between acceptable and unacceptable homosexuality. Heterosexual sexual involvement, for instance, can be either acceptable or unacceptable depending on one's state of marriage. But the Bible never suggests that any form of homosexual behavior is acceptable. It is always treated as sinful activity. People say, next bullet, the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible did not involve commitment. The Bible prohibits casual, unloving sexual relationships of all kinds. But as long as the relationship, whether heterosexual or homosexual, involves two people who are committed to each other and who genuinely love each other, no sin is involved. That's, I'm just telling you that's the argument that's made. But the biblical passages do not simply condemn wrong attitudes, but rather the act itself. Do not lie with a man as one lies with a woman. Old Testament and New Testament authors knew what sexual perversion was. They were not naive to homosexual lifestyles, whether casual or committed. Nowhere in the Bible do we find a hint that homosexual behavior of any kind is morally acceptable. If love is the issue, adultery could be viewed as acceptable to God if it happened in a loving relationship. The Bible, however, never views sex outside of marriage as acceptable, no matter how much love exists in the relationship. So there goes love is love, right? So you hear that, love, people have it on the signs, love is love. This is, the, this is the depths to which the discussion has fallen, that people make uh, tautological statements like that, love is, love is love, without any definition to it, and the Bible will have, will have none of it. The third bullet, the homosexuality prohibited in the Bible is part of the Old Testament law that does not apply to us today. While it's true that the Mosaic law does not have direct application to believers today, those prohibitions appear, as we cited earlier, in the New Testament as well. 
Or God has made homosexuals that way, so to be any other way is to deny God's sovereign design for their lives. But even if, top of page 22, there is found some direct correlation between one's biological makeup and his sexuality, even so, biology is not, is not destiny. In other words, one's sexual behavior is too complex to reduce simply to biology. If homosexuality is connected to one's biological makeup, the Christian response should still be that of resistance and avoidance, not practice. Because we are born sinful creatures, we are naturally sinners, yet the Bible commands us to flee from our lusts and pursue godliness. Homosexual desires, like any other lust which flows from man's depraved nature, must be resisted. One should never entertain or gratify his depraved desires, even though they may be natural and biologically based. So let me just give an example here. Alcohol. Uh, I, um, I have never had a drop of alcohol. <laughs> not because I'm a great guy, I've just never been around it. And I'm thankful I've never been around it. It's just not a thing for the peop my friends when I was growing up. I was never around it. Uh, the reason I chuckled is because my wife, Kim, whenever I say, hey, I've never had a drop of alcohol, she reminds me that one time we were out with friends a few decades ago, and after dinner, the waitress comes and says, would you, you guys want anything to, a dessert or anything like that? And I'm thinking, I want a coffee, but I kind of want something sweet. And she says, well, we got Irish cream. And so I order, and I think, you know what, that sounds good. Kind of coffee-ish cream. She brings it. I'm talking. I start drinking it. My throat kind of burns a little bit. But I'm just still talking away. And then Kim wants to have some. She drinks some of it. She spits it out. She says, that's alcohol. I go, well, I didn't know. How did you know? <laughs> She's never answered that question to this day. Okay. So I did have that drink of an Irish cream. And Kim throws that up to me. All right, But, but alcohol is just not a thing for me. Here's why I bring it up. I have three brothers, all three of them are alcoholics. And my guess is that I, had I gotten into alcohol, I would be susceptible to alcoholism. That there is probably something in our DNA whereby alcohol affects my family in ways that it doesn't affect necessarily everybody else. That doesn't change anything that the Bible teaches because you still can't get drunk. And that's still a sin, even if you're quote, born that way. And that applies to every sinful disposition. So we'll pick it up from there. Bring your notes back with you, if you would, next week. Let's pray and we'll be finished. Father, thank you again for the blessings of this day to be with your people and to sing praise to you and to learn of you, to be able to open your book and to be instructed. Lord, help us to take what we have meditated upon today and and to think about it throughout the week and make application of it to our lives so that we are uh, clearer representatives of your glory, your character in the realms that you've assigned to us. We ask you to help us to be uh, worthy ambassadors in the coming week. And we ask you to grant us safety and to bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.